when I sit in a classroom where I'm taught that that black history starts at slavery, that is educational trauma toward me because I am sitting in a classroom that is showing me that my history is only that I am a descendant of a slave and not that I am the descendant of queens and kings and royalty, not that I'm the descendant of who Greece and Rome and Italy needed to come to to figure out how astronomy worked. And so, unfortunately, we have an education system that is lying to children. The issue within schools is, is we're whitewashing the history. We're not telling kids the truth. Um, Christopher Columbus was not this fantastic human. And like, it's okay to say what he did provided us with an opportunity that we wouldn't have had without it, while also recognizing that he was a rapist. Um, and, and similarly to our founding fathers, we can say that they started the United States and we can also say they owned humans. Carol Lloyd here with Like a Sponge and our third season about the problem and promise of the modern American high school, an institution that is supposed to be an engine of equal opportunity, but well, too often it's just not. The idea that our schools are profoundly inequitable isn't new, but in the last few years, inequitable seems like a polite turn of phrase for something that has often gone unspoken in our schools and our country. Is America a racist country? It absolutely is. Does it not want to be? Okay, let's get to work then. That's Eva Lorene Jean Charles. Most people just call me Eva. She's one of the many young educators who are raising their voice and focusing their efforts on the racism in our schools. By day, she's a special education instructor in the South Bronx. After hours, she helps educators and schools dismantle racism in their practices and policies. Black on Black Education is an education consulting firm um, that's committed to supporting teachers in supporting their black and brown students. So we host conferences, we have a podcast, we host events where we support educators on their quest to being the best possible educator they can be. This quest to embrace anti-racist schooling or culturally responsive teaching, two interrelated ideas we'll touch on later, has been something schools and educators have been struggling with for decades. The earliest public schools were, by definition, racist institutions. They only admitted white children. Eventually, a separate and unequal system of schools grew up that kept white and black children separated until Brown versus Board of Education forced schools to integrate. Segregated schools deny that equal chance and must be broken up. But in the process of integrating schools, many black educators lost their jobs, students lost their role models, and segregation persisted in many forms. Whether it was white flight in the 70s, when white families pulled their children from diverse city schools, or the proliferation of private schools. We contend that forced racial balance does not work to achieve any good purpose. Funding systems based on property taxes only reinforced inequities. Schools serving black, brown, or indigenous communities rarely had all the resources they needed to support children whose families were experiencing housing instability, food insecurity, and a lack of health care, all while living in a country whose policies and legacies disadvantage people of color. Then came the army of well-meaning reformers, 
Unfortunately, solutions to racial inequality didn't always have the intended effect. In the 1990s, charter schools and selective magnets often offered better opportunities to at least some students of color. But they also left regular public schools with fewer resources and a bigger proportion of high-need families. It's time to come together to get it done so that we can truthfully say in America, no child will be left behind, not one single child. The president's nearly No Child Left Behind, George W. Bush's federal education policy introduced standardized tests to reveal a stark reality. Black, brown, and indigenous students were consistently performing lower than their white and Asian peers, triggering accountability cycles that would close low-performing schools and force schools into turnaround programs involving staff layoffs and redesign efforts. Ultimately, though, these tests drew ire from those same communities. Wasn't all this focused on test scores undermining the very schools and educators that were supporting these kids? No justice, no peace! No justice, no peace! In the wake of George Floyd's murder, the Movement for Black Lives catalyzed a national reckoning about the country's racist roots and daily realities that affect Black, immigrant, Latino, and indigenous peoples. And in that moment, many schools and educators spoke up. Publicly, they issued messages of solidarity and promises to change. Privately, they reviewed hiring practices, curriculum, policies, course offerings. All this has made K-12 schools ground zero for a culture war about critical race theory, while many educators have declared that the system is long overdue for some uncomfortable soul-searching. This is the story of one school that recently embarked on that journey, and one teacher who has been exploring that landscape for years. It's also the story of one of her students that traveled forth carrying her lessons with him. Mastery Charter School Pickett Campus is a 6 through 12 middle high school in Germantown, Philadelphia. 96% of its families identify as black and 100% qualify for free or reduced price lunch. I am Margo Munley. I am the principal of Mastery Charter Picket Campus. Because our students are uh, students of color, any uh, racism that exists absolutely impacts our students, uh, both directly and indirectly. The idea of embracing anti-racist practices wasn't necessarily new for Pickett. It's part of the Mastery Charter Network, which aims to catapult low-income students of color into four-year colleges. And like a lot of no-excuses charter networks, Mastery accomplished this via a grueling regimen of old-school academic rigor and strict behavioral expectations. But criticism of this model, that it was way too concerned with policing black and brown bodies, triggered a reckoning. Mastery schools in general has been working towards ensuring that our teachers are aware of their biases and their privileges um, and making sure that we uncover those because we serve predominantly black and brown students across Philadelphia and Camden. And uh, a large percentage of our teaching population, I don't know the exact number, but let's say about half are white. So Pickett began a journey. First, 
they tried to understand the experiences of the staff members of color. We also talked to staff members of color um, and asked them about their experience in the building. Is, is this a place that you want to work in? Does this, do you feel safe um, and seen here? And do you feel that we treat our students in that same way? And uh, hearing their answers was very eye-opening. Then they asked their students similar questions. And the students said, well, often they were... Feeling like they didn't have a voice themselves, that they didn't have leadership opportunities, that they were just being dictated to on a daily basis of what to do. Um, the kind of excellence, no excuses mindset was very much alive um, in our building and how that made them feel. Hearing from staff and students made Margot realize that while Pickett was on the right path toward addressing racism, they still had a long way to go. We often talk about intent versus impact. Our intent might be really great, but actually hearing the impact of our actions from a student is transformative. It certainly was with my own practice. Then the murder of George Floyd threw the school's efforts into sharp relief. When George Floyd was murdered, we sat down and talked as a leadership team and said, we have to make a commitment to being actively anti-racist and not just saying that like racism is bad and we want to be aware of our own biases. And then we had to stop and think through like, okay, that's nice to say, but what does that look like in our daily practice? And how is that different from what we're currently doing? Pickett started by revamping their vision statement to codify their stance on anti-racism. Pickett is a culturally competent, high-achieving beacon of the community where all students love to learn and develop positive identities and where staff reflect and grow in their practice, pursue equity, and create affirming spaces. Every single part of it was driving at a different aspect of the work that we wanted to do. Uh, not a single word in there is superfluous and everything has a meaning. So really codifying that in the statement that then drives our professional development, drives all the straight talk conversations we have with staff, our staff culture. Um, when we decide, are we going to do this program or that? Are we going to have a, um, an open house for parents and a forum for them to give feedback? We always go and look at our vision statement and say, like, does this help drive our vision statement or not? They also turn to a document well known in anti-racist circles that outlines how many standard workplace practices actually are biased against people of color because they privilege certain cultural norms that are common in white American communities, but are far from universal. We've examined as a staff uh, the tenets of white dominant culture and society that we are all steeped in. The work at Pickett really came down to changing people's mindsets, which is hard. You can't change someone's actions unless you change their mindset first. That's Naomi Badger. Last year, she served as assistant principal of instruction and was one of the people spearheading the work of challenging the adult culture. And it's just a challenging place to be in as another adult thinking about your responsibility is to change another adult's mindset, something that they could, that is like very ingrained in them, something that is reinforced through their family, their society, something that is very, could be tied to privilege that they may not even realize they have. And once they do realize they have, who wants to give it up? They started at the top with the leadership team. They tried to create a culture where folks could be vulnerable, could hear feedback, could even be called out. So for example, 
Um, I recall a conversation on our leadership team where a black woman, not me, another um, person on our team lifted something up, felt like what she said wasn't acknowledged. And then a white man on the team said the same thing. And people were like, oh yeah, like we get it, right? And she was able to call that out. But we had to create the culture on our leadership team, which I know is not common because I know other people in the network who have similar identities as me who have had starkly different experiences on their leadership team because the leaders weren't able to engage in those conversations, receive those things. So with a revamped mission and a culture of learning, identifying biases, and holding each other accountable, Pickett began taking steps to become anti-racist. But their journey isn't done. It, it will ne- you'll never be done. You can, there's never a gold star. You are now an anti-racist school. And as they make progress, the project expands. They see how they can influence their network or even the larger school system. We are one school, but we ultimately exist within a system that exists within a system. We still have a responsibility to like chip away at that as much as we you know, can. Of course, anti-racist practices like the ones Pickett has implemented are arguably the first step in changing the system. It's only when adults reframe their mindsets that the experience of students will fundamentally change. This is the work Eva's trying to do, enable educators to examine their biases. And when you don't question yourself, you are able to continue doing practices that you think are correct because that's what you were taught in your teacher prep program. And since teachers often don't get feedback on how their own biases impact their teaching, they end up building those blind spots into lesson plans, rubrics, grading systems. I could have biases that negatively impact certain populations of students, whether that be girls, whether that be boys, whether that be trans folks. I have reflection I need to do about my practice. And how do you reflect on something if no one has given you feedback? Eva says she's seen how implicit biases end up continuing policies and practices that impact black or brown kids at almost every point in their schooling. Let's look at the numbers in terms of students who are getting um, put into honors or AP. Is it because they're not smart enough or is it because the teacher doesn't see the potential in them? She also sees how unprepared teachers are for the work of fixing all the different policies and practices and assumptions that keep our schools replicating racism. They weren't taught about it as children, and they weren't taught about it as adolescents, and then they weren't taught about it in college, and they weren't taught about it in their teacher preparation master's program that they paid all that money for. And so we're expecting them to get it because the media tells them that they have to. And... That's just not how it works. And then schools are like, hey, we got one black person that works here. Let's give them all the anti-racist priorities and have them figure out how to make our school anti-racist when they don't know what it is either. Our schools have to stop thinking that giving us one PD a year is going to fix it. It's not. So what will fix it? The racism that shows up in the classroom, in the programs, in the teacher's lounge, in the principal's office, are based on a lot of assumptions, ingrained habits, policies the adults perpetuate, often without any awareness. If schools are a microcosm of society and society is racist, how do you prevent schools from being the same? An anti-racist school is a school that recognizes that we live in a racist society. We need to listen. Pull every single one of your students of color out of the classroom, all of them. Pull every single one of your teachers of color out of the classroom. 
and listen to them. Pull their parents out, talk to them. Pull your alumni out, talk to them. Hear them. But if you don't ever give them the space to do so, how do they tell you? So the number one step is being able to shut up and to listen. So what does doing better look like? Eva says school leaders may have to evaluate staffing, examine their physical classrooms and other spaces. What posters are on the walls? Who's represented there? When a kid gets in trouble, how can you check for racial bias when you discipline them? How do you not end up pushing young people out of the school system via suspension or expulsion? And how do you build relationships with kids for whom the system has never worked? A lot of people ask me for a clear definition of an anti-racist school. And we learn from Pickett, it's not a destination, so much as an ongoing effort. Being an anti-racist school means rethinking everything from staffing to posters, professional development to discipline policies, not just to remove bias, but ensure that all students have the opportunity to thrive. A lot of our conversations about making whole schools anti-racist felt a little vague, hard to pin down. A lot of talk about reflecting on bias, changing mindsets, aspirations for the future. It's like everyone is groping in the dark to find their way to a new way of being, a new way of evolving an entire school. But if there's one thing we're learning from our research on high schools, changing whole schools is a challenge. But at the level of the classroom, some teachers seem to have really cracked the code and developed teaching practices that are truly designed to strip out bias and empower every child to learn. We found a classroom in Brownsville, Texas, where this happens every day. My name is Johan Sandoval. I'm 18 years old. I live in Matamoros, Mexico. Currently, yeah, I'm a Boston University student, so I'm currently doing uh, political science, my major. My first language is Spanish. I studied in Mexico up to eighth grade. So the transition to the U.S. was kind of hard for me, uh, getting to adapt to that new language. Because I knew, I knew English, but it, it's not like I, I spoke English every day or I took classes in English, nothing like that. Idea Frontier College Preparatory is a charter high school right on the U.S.-Mexico border. 97% of the students identify as Hispanic, and 90% qualify for free and reduced-price lunch. Idea is one of those charter schools with outsized results. Kids go to four-year colleges at insane rates, and basically every one of their schools have won our College Success Award every year since it started. I first heard about Frontier from other principals in the region, complaining that Frontier gets all the really motivated students and they get the Frontier dropouts. This made me think I would be encountering one of those impossibly rigorous schools that never gives an inch in pursuit of excellence. I never imagined it would be a place where a kid like Johan could succeed, a kid who didn't really speak English and who started his day in Mexico. How it works is that we have to wake up around 5, 5.30 in the morning to get ready. And my parents have to drop us off at the bridge and we have to cross the bridge uh, walking, right? We make line, we walk. And then on the other side, there's a bus, uh, a school bus waiting for us. And they take us to the school and then from the school back to the, that stop and then we walk again the bridge. 
we deal with uh, 95% of our students or more that are bilingual and specifically they speak Spanish. That's Evelyn Laura, who teaches IB English for juniors and seniors. Everything she does is with her students' culture, identity, and specifically language in mind. And my freshman year, my sophomore year, I did struggle a lot because my teachers uh, that I had at the time, they didn't have that understanding that Ms. Lara had. She really understood that there's some students that English is not the first language, so they don't learn the same way. In the classroom, we access about one book a month. And the books are from different genres, different authors, different places, different times, and different genders. We go from reading Hamlet, anything that Shakespeare has put for us. To be or not to be. We read Greek mythology and we'll read young adult literature. Sometimes we'll read poetry. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the Sometimes we will read um, short stories. Uh, we'll read from Japanese uh, authors. We'll read from Murakami to Robert Frost. I mean, everything. In other words, Evelyn's class has a very academic syllabus. They're reading the classics, authors from around the world, poetry. These are the kind of books that could really break the spirits of students who can't read English fluently. But what makes her class different is that she centers their experience, leans into their skills, and works around their gaps. This is the first tenet of culturally responsive teaching. The teacher changes how they approach teaching based on the cultural strengths and interests of their students. What does this look like? Well, first of all, she meets her students where they are. Her goal is to get students to be able to do astute textual analysis of complex texts in English in order to pass the International Baccalaureate English Test, which is known to be really hard. But instead of trying to teach literary analysis while studying Hamlet, she uses where the wild things are. So at the beginning of the year, what I try to implement before we start reading any text, so we analyze five to six children's books. I'm like, what? Like, what are we doing? We're high school seniors reading children's literature. Like, what? Makes no sense. But uh, she took it to a different level. And what that allows me to do is teach them basic things like characters, setting, conflict, plot, the basic things that the students need in order for them to continue with the rest of the text, because the text will get harder. She wanted us to practice the, the whole concept of extracting the ideas or the messages. We were analyzing a lot of the books through lenses, so we were analyzing children's literature through a racial lens, through a feminist lens, through a contemporary or a post-colonial lens. So it, it, was, it was really interesting. It completely changes the way that they look at literature. It completely changes the way that they look at books. And it gets them excited to be able to do and replicate those same skills, but with bigger books. Next, she makes sure that some of those bigger books are by and about people who look like and have similar backgrounds to her students. And I realized that when I exposed them to text um, that is more uh, tied to their identity and their culture, they're able to even just, um, there's like this, this love of learning and reading that I see that happens with those texts rather than something that they don't understand. 
So baby board book analysis, culturally relatable novels. Next up, every student has the opportunity to read those assigned texts in Spanish first. For me, it is important that we give these students the opportunity to access the material and the information first in the language that they are most uh, comfortable in. And I, and I feel that that does wonders when it comes to their motivation, their confidence, and their ability to be a part of the class. So I remember I was really like shocked the first day. Um, I remember we were reading the book, uh, The Chronicles of the Dead Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And, and we had the book in English, but Miss Lara had a version in Spanish. She had like 10 copies of the book in Spanish. And I was like, wow, like this is the first teacher I've ever met that does this. And she told us, if you guys feel more comfortable reading the book in Spanish, tell me, I have a copy for you. We're reading more complex writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So de definitely there's like some messages between, in between the lines, right? So when I was reading in Spanish, it was more easy to catch up those like messages or the like, like hidden clues that when I was reading in English, maybe I wouldn't get. So yeah, it allowed me to, to think more deeply about what, what was being said in the book. But she doesn't stop there. She knows that at home, her students may not have a place to do homework, so she doesn't assign reading. Instead, she reads entire books out loud. Then she models how to analyze as they go. So I do a lot of read aloud in the classroom. I don't want them to worry about fluency or phrasing or uh, stressing of the sounds. I want them to just focus on making meaning of what it is that we are reading. And it takes away that pressure from those students that aren't comfortable um, with the English language. And all of this sends a message to students like Shohan. I think it, it, uh, it made us feel valued. It, it made us, because a lot of, if you look at the statistics, Many of the students who struggle in my school, they're like, their first language is Spanish. So a lot of times they categorize them of like, oh, they don't speak English, so they struggle. And, and, and we sometimes we feel like, like undervalued, you know? But that made us feel like, okay, they care about us, they care about us learning, and they want us to learn. She also allows kids to show what they know in different media. Ultimately, all of them need to learn how to write formal English prose. But the path there doesn't have to be a straight line. Some of the students create visual representations or videos or songs in order to show her that they've mastered the ideas. She also allows them to be assessed verbally. When I give the students the opportunity um, to show what they know verbally, it allows me to be able to teach them how to write about it a lot easier. Why? Because there comes a point where I realize that the students struggle not necessarily with the content or with the knowledge, but with the writing skills because of the language barrier. And perhaps most strikingly, she allows students to write first in their primary language, which gives her Spanish-speaking students a tool they can use for the rest of their education. I remember when it came to writing my essays, I'd never thought about that. And then Miss Lada introduced me to it. She was like, uh, so why don't you write them in Spanish? She's like, why don't you write your essays in Spanish and then you can translate them. I'll help you to translate them. I was like, I've never thought about that. And, and, and um, yeah, my, my, my writing was way better in Spanish. And it's just easier to translate it when you have everything written than translating everything in your brain as you're writing it. 
So that's something I still do to this day. Uh, and I have to write an essay for college. I don't do it with every essay, but I, I did it with one essay where I wrote it in Spanish and then I translated it. When I first met Evelyn and heard about her work, I was like, this is so beautiful. I'll bet her students love her. But maybe she's just making the work a little too easy. Maybe it's not that rigorous. Then I met Johan and I was like, okay, this works for some kids who might otherwise fall through the cracks. But I have to admit, I still felt a touch skeptical. Johan is an anecdote, so maybe he's an outlier. Then I looked at Evelyn's results. And at a school with already outstanding outcomes for low-income kids, she's at the very top of the entire network in terms of how her students perform. By relentlessly removing barriers and allowing students to engage their own strengths, their own culture, their language, Evelyn doesn't dumb down her work. She opens it up so that kids who might have seen their background as a weakness now understand its strength. So you may be thinking, my child's not at a school like Pickett where all the adults are actively rethinking every policy to eliminate racial bias. My child doesn't have a teacher like Evelyn Laura, who literally removes barriers to supercharge kids' learning. What can I do? According to the experts, a lot. Parents have a lot more power than I think that they realize. It all begins with asking questions about priorities. If a parent is looking for a school, you need to look at how willing your school is to talk to you, what their policy is around family engagement. Do they have a family engagement coordinator? Is that something that they're prioritizing in terms of money? They have to pay somebody to do that. Are they buying computers before they're paying for PD on racism? And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that the computers are not necessary, but I'm saying how a child feels when they come into the school is way more important than if they have a computer or not. A lot of people are like, how are we going to do this? Our schools are under-resourced. They don't have money. It don't take no money to look at a child and believe that they are powerful beyond measure and to do everything in your power to uplift them, to believe that for themselves. It don't take not a dollar to do that. It takes prioritizing it. It takes prioritizing. If there's one thing that I want to leave you with is that we won't make our schools anti-racist. We won't make our classrooms culturally responsive without actually doing things in a different way. And that means prioritizing those changes, whether it's new professional development for teachers, disciplinary policies, book lists, or teaching strategies. But here's the thing, redesigning high schools to work for the kids who have most often been pushed aside or undervalued doesn't mean the kids who have thrived in the old style schools will suddenly be left out. In fact, anti-racist, culturally responsive classrooms should work better for everyone because they begin with a belief in the individual child, looking at their strengths and needs, and then creating the environment and the teaching practices around them. Like a Sponge is a production of Great Schools and was made by Jessica Yarmoski and me, Carol Lloyd. Our audio engineer is Christopher Ferreira. Editorial support from Jessica Kelman. This story was based on reporting by Barrett Rosser, who wrote a great piece about Pickett's efforts to become anti-racist for great schools. Special thanks to Johan Sandoval, Evelyn Laura, Eva Jean Charles, Margot Munley, and Naomi Badger. This season is made possible by a generous grant from the Barr Foundation. 
Also, this podcast is part of a project called Transforming High School with articles, videos, tools in English and Spanish for parents and educators. Check it out at greatschools.org slash transforminghighschool. And finally, we love hearing from you. So if you get a chance, give us your feedback with a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come.